Welcome to Pushback. I'm Aaron Maté. We have been covering the unfolding scandal at the Organization for the Prohibition of Chemical Weapons. Two whistleblowers from the OPCW have come forward to allege that top officials suppressed evidence collected at the scene of an alleged chemical weapons attack by the Syrian government in the city of Douma in April 2018. The evidence that was collected, these whistleblowers say, undermined the claim that the Syrian government carried out a chemical weapons attack. But that evidence was never made public. The second whistleblower recently gave testimony at a panel convened by the Courage Foundation. And I'm joined now by the first journalist to interview that second whistleblower. Jonathan Steele is a veteran journalist and the former chief foreign correspondent for The Guardian. Welcome, Jonathan Steele, to Pushback. You recently spoke to the second whistleblower. Talk to us about his position and uh, his main revelations. Well, he was one of the members of the team of fact finders called the Fact Finding Mission, which was sent to Syria after the alleged gas attack. And he was the man in charge of deciding what samples to pick up from the ground and in related buildings and to decide how to collect them. And so it was a very senior position. Uh, they checked in two buildings particularly, one which uh, had a cylinder on the roof and the other which had a cylinder on the upper floor of a, a nearby building just below a hole in the roof. Now, the rebels claimed that these two cylinders contained chlorine gas that had been dropped from Syrian government helicopters. That's why they were in the position where they were found. But there was doubt over that. There was also doubt over the question of the whether there had actually been any gas at all. The first whistleblower, his evidence was leaked in a report in March this year. And he came to the conclusion, which he said, I spoke to him on the telephone. He came to the conclusion, uh, which was accepted by everybody except one other member of the team, that there was a higher probability that these cylinders had been placed manually in the place where they were found, rather than being dropped from helicopters. Well, the new whistleblower was not dealing with the cylinders as such. He was dealing with whether there was gas in the environment. Now, chlorine gas degrades very rapidly. So by the time the inspectors got to the ground, which was about two weeks after the alleged gas attack, it would have evaporated and disappeared. But that didn't mean there was no possibility of finding out if gas had been used, because while it degrades, it contaminates or acts with other chemicals that are in the natural environment. And so you can test for the what are called chlorinated organic chemicals, COCs, to see whether the levels are different from what you find in the natural environment uh, in, or in drinking water or in households or in the ground. And they took these samples when they got back to The Hague, to the headquarters of the OPCW, which is in Holland in The Hague. They were sent off to two designated laboratories to be analysed. And this whistleblower waited eagerly to hear what the conclusions were. And weeks went by, nothing happened. And he then discovered that management had received the results, but hadn't passed them on to him or the other members of the team. Um, he also found out that the levels of COCs, chlorinated organic chemicals, in the samples picked up in these key buildings were lower 
lower than the, those found in the natural environment. So this suggested there couldn't have been a gas attack because you would have expected them to be higher, not lower. He also discovered that a report was going to be issued which would not contain his findings or his analysis, but would claim that the levels were not lower than in the natural environment. In other words, the lab tests would be totally ignored. And he complained to higher management about it. And what did management tell him when he complained? Well, he complained initially to the director general of the OPCW, the top person, who said that they should look again and produce a different report, not the management report that the whistleblower got sight of. But while they were preparing this new report, he and colleagues insisted to the head of the fact-finding team, who was also actually another Tunisian called Sami Barak, that they must include the low levels of COCs in the report, otherwise this would be uh, distorting the lab analysis that they just received. And they got promises that that would happen, but then two days before the report came out, he discovered that after all, they had not included the low levels of COCs. And that came out in the interim report in July last year. And then in March this year, the final report was published, which again excluded the low levels of COCs. And so they concluded, the, the whistleblowers had concluded on the basis of the results that there had not been a chemical related event. They didn't go so far as to say that the issue had been staged, in fact, nor had the original report of the cylinder examination the previous year had said that. But the, the inference could be drawn. If there wasn't a chemical gas attack, how had these cylinders got to the position that they'd got? Well, the first report, the one that was suppressed and ultimately leaked, it was authored by Ian Henderson, uh, said that the inference could be drawn that the cylinders were manually placed, suggesting didn't say this this part but after saying that if you say the cylinders are manually placed that suggests then that the attack is staged right because of course the rebels were in charge of the area at the time of the alleged gas attack about a week later they lost control of it i mean they'd lost control of a large part of duma already but the final bit they lost and they all escaped um, many of them went to turkey and uh, so by the time the syrian government came in there it was reasonable and safe for the inspectors to go in. By the way, in all the OPCW investigations of chemical gas attacks by the Syrian government, this was the first time that they'd been allowed to go in on the ground. Because when the rebels were in control of areas, even though they claimed there'd been gas attacks, it was not possible for the OPCW to go in. Either they decided not to go in or they decided security was not good enough for them to be able to go in. So this Damascus Duma episode was crucial. The first time inspectors had been permitted to go into the area and pick up samples from the ground where the gas attack was allegedly taken, had taken place. And just to specify, when you say the rebels, the group that controlled Duma at the time was a Saudi-backed, Saudi-funded extremist militia called Jaysh al-Islam. And Jaysh al-Islam, which means in Arabic, the army of Islam. Right. And the reason why this story is all the more significant is because uh, this, the allegation that there was a chemical weapons attack by the Syrian government prompted for the second year in a row 
uh, airstrikes by the U.S., also along with Britain and France. And now we are hearing two whistleblowers say that the rationale for those strikes was wrong. But on that point, you have a stunning detail in your article on this about the second whistleblower's uh, claims, where you report this. I'll read it. You're talking about uh, uh, Bob Fairweather, who was the uh, chef de cabinet at the OPCW, a high-ranking official there. And uh, you're describing the, the attempts by the whistleblower to have his samples, uh, to have the samples included and to have all the evidence weighed. Uh, and you write this. On July 4th, there was another intervention. Bob Fairweather, the chef de cabinet, invited several members of the drafting team from the OPCW to his office. There they found three U.S. officials who were cursorily introduced without making clear which agencies, which U.S. agencies they represented. The Americans told them emphatically that the Syrian regime had conducted a gas attack, that the two cylinders found on the roof and upper floor of the building contained 170 kilograms of chlorine. The inspectors left Fairweather's office, feeling that the invitation to the Americans to address them was unacceptable pressure and a violation of the OPCW's declared principles of independence and impartiality. That's from uh, Jonathan Steele's piece on this. So Jonathan Steele, talk to us about that. We have an intervention here by un three unnamed American officials. Well, it's pretty much exactly as you read out from my recent article. You know, it's interesting. The, the panel that heard the second whistleblower's testimony included Jose Bustani. Uh, the, fir the founding director general of the OPCW. And Bustani is famous because he was basically forced out of his job uh, by the U.S. and John Bolton infamously threatened him. That's right. He was the first director general of the organization for prohibition of chemical weapons, which only started in 1997. And... Uh, they were at that time, the U.S. was at that time obviously ramping up the pressure against Saddam Hussein's Iraq. And the OPCW had started discussions with Baghdad, with uh, Saddam Hussein's people, about whether Iraq would join the Chemical Weapons Convention. Various countries were joining, took some time for different countries to come on board. And the U.S. apparently, we can only speculate the reasons, but the U.S. apparently thought that this would undermine its case that Saddam Hussein had weapons of mass destruction if he voluntarily agreed to join the Chemical Weapons Convention, which obviously includes the pledge that you don't have chemical weapons and that you've destroyed them all. So this would have undermined the case for the invasion of Iraq in 2003, and John Bolton was very keen that Bustani stop the negotiations with Iraq and Bustani initially refused and they eventually forced him out and told him he had to resign. And so allegedly threatened to take pressures on his family. They said, we know where your children live. At that stage, his children were actually living in New York City. And now, 16 years later, we appear, based on what you report here, to have another case of U.S. pressure, political pressure, on the OPCW for a uh, majorly consequential event that involves U.S. military force. Jonathan Still, you're a veteran journalist. Are you surprised so far by the lack of global attention to this story? It seems like a major scandal. Two, whistleblower, two whistleblowers at the world's top chemical weapons watchdog uh, alleging potential fraud. Well, I am rather surprised because, I mean, people 
not afraid to criticize U.S. foreign policy or British foreign policy, French foreign policy in general. So it's not as though that it's a taboo subject to criticize the big powers for the way they operate. But somehow I think in this Syrian case, because Bashar al-Assad, the president of Syria, has been so heavily demonized, plus Russia being demonized under Vladimir Putin, and Putin is, of course, an ally helping to protect the Syrian government, it seems that they are considered to be so evil, so wicked, that anything that takes the pressure off them a little bit is uh, difficult to analyze and to investigate by the mainstream media, it seems. I mean, I can only speculate why they don't want to do it, but that's my guess. Well, there's been widespread bipartisan support uh, spanning uh, across the political spectrum into the left uh, into left-wing um, circles for the proxy war that raged for so long in Syria and a real refusal, I find, to look at the reality on the ground. But look, let me ask you, as someone who covers this now, along with anybody else who comes forward on this issue, you're going to be attacked and uh, smeared as, a, as an apologist for the Assad government. So let me ask you, what are your thoughts on the government, uh, on the Syrian government? Well, I think the Syrian government is a pretty hardline government and it's determined to smash the rebellion that began in 2011. And uh, increasingly, as the war has become militarized, the opposition has started to take arms from abroad. The jihadi fighters have come in from abroad. It's degenerated uh, into what you called rightly a proxy war. And uh, there's brutality on both sides. I think the Syrian government has... Uh, behave pretty badly with detentions and torture of people. That seems to be pretty well documented. And uh, they are bombing from the air, but it's no worse, I think, the bombing from the air from what British and American planes have done in Raqqa. If you look at pictures of Raqqa after it was liberated from IS, you see complete streets and residential areas flattened just as Aleppo, Eastern Aleppo was flattened and Homs was flattened. So I think the use of air power by both sides in this terrible proxy war in Syria has been pretty much the same on both sides. The whistleblowers, both of them, say uh, that they want to testify at an upcoming session of the OPCW. Can you talk about uh, what concerns they want to bring to uh, that session, which is happening later this month? and whether you think they'll be allowed to do so? Well, there's, there's, in the statutes of the OPCW, it is said that inspectors have the right to register dissent or disagreement without any fear of, of adverse consequences to their careers or to their liberty um, or their promotion prospects and so on. And so they really want to just exercise their right to express dissent from the official report as it came out, both the interim and the and the uh, final report, and speak to the, all the 193 member states of the OPCW, which is holding its annual conference starting uh, November the 25th. And it seems a fairly reasonable demand. Uh, I mean, the whistleblower that I heard in Brussels last month had a very impressive PowerPoint produ production, which probably he would like to show if he gets permission to do it in The Hague in a week's time, but uh, I don't know whether they, uh, they're going to be given permission to do that or not, because uh, the same people who've distorted this report will probably not want any public dissent to be aired 
at the annual conference, but let's wait and see. There is mounting pressure from public opinion and from media, the alternative media pretty much. Uh, and I think individual letters have been written by the Courage Foundation people to all the member states inviting them to ask for the whistleblowers to give their evidence. And uh, one of the signatories of that letter is Jose Bustani, the first director general of the OPCW we already just discussed earlier in this interview. Right, also Hans von Sponek, the former UN humanitarian coordinator in Iraq, also Noam Chomsky, the MIT professor, and others. Um, one thing that you also report that I wanted to ask you about is that the whistleblowers made uh, concerns uh, noted in emails to top officials at the OPCW, and you report that they were asked to basically uh, return those emails or, or, or to delete them? They, they, they were, and they did do that. And I asked uh, Mr. Fairweather by email whether he could explain why that was done, but I, he, he didn't reply. Do you know if the whistleblowers uh, have the original copies of the emails that they sent that, that made their uh, concerns known? I don't know. I mean, they told me they complied with the request to recall them, to, to send the emails back. So I don't know exactly what happened. So, the, but, but this is key because this could basically uh, bury a paper trail that shows that these whistleblowers expressed their concern and their it objections. Yeah, the paper trail would be important. So would the, the discovery of the actual documents, the in, initial report written by the whistleblower, the redacted report that was supposed to uh, replace it, and then the, the, the third report, which was an edited one before the final report, the interim final report came out in July last year. I mean, we did ask, uh, and I asked uh, specifically the whistleblower whether we could see his report. He declined to do that for reasons which he didn't explain. But I hope that at some point those documents and those reports will also be published. Finally, Jonathan Steele, in speaking to the second whistleblower, what was your impression of him? Do you think that he wanted to do it in this way, or was he hoping that this could be resolved internally? He was definitely hoping that it would be resolved internally, and so was Ian Henderson, who wrote the report about the gas cylinders having been more likely placed manually on the ground in Duma. I think the point, basic point is, and I'm glad you asked the question, is that these are professional scientists. They worked for many years at the OPCW. They wouldn't have been sent to Syria to pick up evidence if they'd had strong political views of one kind or another. They just feel annoyed that they're professional scientific conclusions have been rejected in favor of politically biased answers which favor the foreign policy agenda of certain powerful Western states. They feel that the science is being, being uh, corrupted. And finally, you uh, reached out to the OPCW and you uh, asked them to respond to the whistleblower's uh, claims. What did, what did they tell you? Well, again, as with Mr. Fairweather, they, they just didn't respond. There was plenty of time. I, I, I wasn't rushing them. There was plenty of time. And they still haven't responded. So I don't know what conclusions you draw from that. 
Well, we'll leave it there for now and continue to cover this story. Hope you'll come back to join us, Jonathan Steele. Jonathan Steele is a veteran journalist, the former chief foreign correspondent for The Guardian, and the first journalist to interview the second whistleblower who has come forward in the OPCW scandal. Jonathan Steele, thanks very much. Thank you for having me.